Section 10 of The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Smith. The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. The Axton Letters. By William McCarg and Edwin Balmer. Part One. The sounds in her dressing room had waked her just before five. Ethel Waldron could still see, when she closed her eyes, every single sharp detail of her room. As it was, that instant she sprang up in bed. With a cry that had given the alarm and switched on the electric light, instantly the man had shut the door. But as she sat, strained, staring at it to reopen, the hands and dial of her clock standing on the mantel beside the door had fixed themselves upon a retina like the painted dial of a jeweler's dummy. It could have been barely five, therefore, when Howard Axton, after his first swift rush in her defense, had found the window which had been forced open, had picked up the queer Turkish dagger which he found broken on the seal, and crying to the girl not to call the police, as it was surely the same man. The same man he meant who had so inexplicably followed him around the world, had rushed to his room for extra cartridges for his revolver and run out into the cold sleet of the March morning. So it was now an hour or more since Howard had run after the man, revolver in hand, and he had not reappeared or telephoned or sent any word at all of his safety. And however much Howard's life in wild lands had accustomed him to seek redress outside the law hers still had the city-bred impulse to appeal to the police she turned from her nervous pacing at the window and seized the telephone from its hook but at the sound of the operator's voice she remembered again howard's injunction that the man whenever he appeared was to be left solely to him and dropped the receiver without answering but she resented fiercely the advantage he held over her, which must oblige her, she knew, to obey him. He had told her frankly, threatened her indeed, that if there was the slightest publicity given to his homecoming to marry her, or any further notoriety made of the attending circumstances, he would surely leave her. At the rehearsal of this threat, she straightened and, through the superfluous, dressing gown from her shoulders with a proud defiant gesture she was a straight almost tall girl with the figure of a more youthful diana and with features as fair and flawless as any younger hera and in addition a great depth of blue in very direct eyes and a crowning glory of thick golden hair she was barely twenty-two and she was not used to having any man show a sense of advantage over her much less threaten her as howard had done so in that impulse of defiance she was reaching again for the telephone she had just dropped when she saw through the fog outside the window the man she was waiting for a tall alert figure hastening toward the house she ran downstairs rapidly and herself opened the door to him a fresh flush of defiance flooding over her whether she re resented it because this man whom she did not love but must marry could appear more the reassured and perfect gentleman without collar or scarf 
and with his clothes and boots spattered with mud and rain than any of her other friends could ever appear or whether it was merely the confident insolent smile of his full lips behind his small close-clipped moustache she could not tell at any rate she motioned him into the library without speaking but when they were alone and she had closed the door she burst upon him well howard well well howard breathlessly then you have not sent any word to the police ethel i was about to the moment you came but i have not yet she had to confess or to that he checked the epithet that was on his lips your friend carl she flushed and shook her head he drew his revolver broke it ejecting the cartridges carelessly upon the table and threw himself wearily into a chair i'm glad to see you understand that this has not been the sort of affair for anyone else to interfere in has been you mean the girl's face went white you you caught him this time and killed him howard killed him ethel the man laughed but observed her more carefully of course i haven't killed him or even caught him but i've made myself sure at last that he's the same fellow that's been trying to make a fool of me all this year that's been after me as i wrote you and if you remember my letters even you i mean a girl brought up in a city ought, ought to see how it's a matter of honor with me now to settle with him alone i if he is merely trying to make a fool of you as you say yes howard the girl returned hotly but from what you yourself have told me of him you know he must be keeping after you for some serious reason yes you know it i can see it you can't deny it ethel what do you mean by that i mean that if you do not think that the man who has been following you from calcutta to cape town to chicago means more than a joke for you to settle for yourself anyway know that the man who has now twice gone through the things in my room is something for me to go to the police about and have the papers flaring the family scandal again the man returned i admit ethel he conceded carefully calculating the sharpness of his second sting before he delivered it that if you or i could call in the police without settling the whole pack of papers upon us again i'd be glad to do it if only to please you but i told you before i came back that if there was to be any more airing of the family affairs at all i could not come so if you want to press the point now of course i can leave you he gave the very slightest but most suggestive glance about the rich luxurious furnishings of the great room in possession you know i can't let you do that the girl flushed scarlet but neither can you prevent me from making the private inquiry i spoke of for myself she went to the side of the room and in his plain hearing took down the telephone and called a number without having to look it up mr carl please she said oh henry is it you you can take me to your mr tront wasn't that the name as soon as you can now yes i want you to come here i will have my brom immediately and still without another word or even a glance at axton she brushed by him and ran up the stairs to her room 
He had made no effort to prevent her telephoning, and she wondered at it, even as, in the same impetus of reckless anger, she swept up the scattered letters and papers on her writing desk and put on her things to go out. But on her way downstairs, she stopped suddenly. The curl of the cigarette smoke through the open library door showed that he was waiting just inside it. He meant to speak to her before she went out. Perhaps he was even glad to have Carl come in order that he might speak his say in the presence of both of them. Suddenly, his tobacco's sharp, distinctive odor sickened her. She turned about, ran upstairs again, and fled almost headlong down the rear stairs and out of the servant's door to the alley. The dull gray fog, which was thickening as the morning advanced, veiled her and made her unrecognizable, except at a very few feet. But at the end of the alley, this shrank instinctively from the glance of the men passing until she made out a hurrying form of a man taller even than Axton and much broader. She sprang toward it with a shiver of relief as she saw Henry Carl's light hair and recognized his even open features. Ethel, he caught her, gasping his surprise. You here? Why? Don't go to the house. She led him the opposite way. There is a cab stand at the corner. Get one there and take me. Take me to this Mr. Trant. I will tell you everything. The man came again last night. Auntie is sick in bed from it. Howard still says it is his affair and will do nothing. I had to come to you. Carl steadied her against a house wall an instant ran to the corner for a cab, and returning with it, half lifted her into it. Forty minutes later, he led her into Trant's reception room in the First National Bank building, and recognizing the abrupt, decisive tones of the psychologist in conversation in the inner office, Carl went to the door and knocked sharply. I beg your pardon, but can you possibly postpone what you are doing, Mr. Trant? He questioned quickly as the door opened and he faced the sturdy and energetic form of the red-haired young psychologist who, in six months, had made himself admittedly the chief consultant in Chicago on criminal cases. My name is Carl. Henry Howe introduced me to you last week at the club, but I'm not presuming upon that for this interruption. I and my friend need your help badly, Mr. Trant, and immediately, I mean, if we cannot speak with you now, we may be interrupted unpleasantly. Carl had moved as he spoke to hide the girl behind him from the sight of the man in the inner office, who Carl had been seen was a police officer. Trant noted this, and also that Carl had carefully refrained from mentioning the girl's name. I can postpone this present business, Mr. Carl, the psychologist replied quietly. He closed the door, but reopened it almost instantly. His official visitor had left through the entrance directly into the hall. The two young clients came into the inner room. This is Mr. Trant, Ethel. Carl spoke to the girl a little nervously as she took a seat. And Mr. Trant, this is Miss Waldron. I have brought her to tell you of a mysterious man who has been pursuing Howard Axton about the world, and who, since Axton came home to her house two weeks ago, has been threatening her. Axton? Axton, I? The psychologist repeated the name which Carl had spoken, as if assured that Trant must recognize it. Ah, oh, I, of course, Howard Axton is the son 
he frankly admitted his clearing recollection of his comp comprehension of how the face of the girl had seemed familiar then you he addressed her directly are miss waldron of drexel boulevard yes i am that miss waldron mr trant the girl replied flushing red to her lips but raising her head proudly and meeting his eyes directly the stepdaughter the daughter of the second wife of mr nimrod axton it was my mother mr trant who was the cause of miss anna axton getting a divorce and the complete custody of her son from mr axton twenty years ago it was my mother who just before mr nimrod axton's death last year required that in the will the son the first miss axton was then dead should be cut off absolutely and entirely without a cent and that mr axton's entire estate be put in trust for her my mother so since you doubtless remember the reopening of all this again six months ago when my mother too died i am now the sole heir and legatee of the axton properties of upwards of sixty millions they tell me yes i am that miss waldron mr trant i i recall the accounts but only vaguely from the death of mr axton and later of the second miss axton your mother miss waldron trant replied quietly though i remember the comment upon the disposition of the estate both times it was from the pictures published of you and the and the accompanying comment in the papers only a week or two ago that i recognized you i mean of course the recent comments upon the son mr howard axton whom you have mentioned who has come home at last to contest the will you do miss waldron an injustice all the papers have been doing her a great injustice mr trant carl corrected quickly mr axton has not come to contest the will no no miss waldron has had him come home at her own several times repeated requests so that she may turn over to him as completely as possible the whole of his father's estate if you can recall in any detail the provisions of mr axton's will you will appreciate i believe why we have preferred to let the other impression go uncorrected for the second miss axton so carefully and completely cut off all possibility of any of the property being transferred in any form to the son that miss waldron when she went to a lawyer to see how she could transfer it to howard axton as soon as she had come into the estate found that her mother's lawyers had provided against every possibility except that of the the heir marrying the disinherited son so she sent for him offering to establish him into his estate even at that cost you mean that you offered to marry him trant questioned the girl directly again and he has come to gain his estate in that way yes mr trant but you must be fair to mr axton also the girl replied when i first wrote him almost a year ago he refused point-blank to consider such an offer in spite of my repeated letters it was not till six weeks ago after a shipwreck in which he lost his friend who had been traveling with him for some years that he would consent even to come home even now i i remain the one urging the marriage the psychologist looked at the girl keenly and questioningly i need scarcely say how little urging he would need entirely apart from the property carl flushed if he were not 
gentleman enough to appreciate, partly at least, Miss Waldron's position. I, her friends, I mean, Mr. Trant, have admitted that he appeared at first well enough in every way to permit the possibility of her marrying him if she considers that her duty. But now this mystery has come up about the man who has been following him, the man who appeared again only this morning in Miss Waldron's room and went through her papers. And Mr. Axton cannot account for it. The psychologist helped him. Axton won't tell her or anybody else who the man is or why he follows him. On the contrary, he has opposed in every possible way every inquiry or search made for the man, except such as he chooses to make for himself. Only this morning he made a threat against Miss Waldron if she attempted to summon the police and take the man out of his hands. And it is because I am sure that he will follow us here to prevent her consulting you. When he finds that she has come here, that I ask you to see us at once, leave the details of his appearance this morning to the last, then, Trant requested abruptly. And tell me where you first heard of this man following Mr. Axton, and how. How, for instance, do you know he was following him? If Mr. Axton is so reticent about the affair, that is... One of the strange things about it, Mr. Trant, the girl took from her bosom the bundle of letters she had taken from her room. He used to write to amuse me with him. As you can see here, I told you I wrote Mr. Axon about a year ago to come home, and he refused to consider it. But afterwards, he always wrote in reply to my letters, in the half-serious, friendly way you shall see. These four letters I brought you are almost entirely taken up with his adventures with the mysterious man. He wrote on typewriter, as you can see, she handed them over, because on his travels he used to correspond regularly for some of the London syndicates. London? Yes, the first Mrs. Axton took Howard to England with her when he was scarcely seven, immediately after she got her divorce. He grew up there, and abroad, this is the first return to America. I have arranged those letters, Mr. Trant, she added, as the psychologist was opening them for examination now in the order they came i will read them that way then mr trot said and he glanced over the contents of the first hastily it was postmarked at cairo egypt some ten months before he then reread more carefully this part of it but a strange and startling incident has happened since my last letter to you miss waldron which bothers me considerably we are as you will see by the letter paper at Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo, but could not, after our usual custom, get communicating rooms. It was after midnight, and the million no noises of this babbled town had finally died into a hot and breathless stillness. I had been writing letters, and when through, I put out the lights to get rid of the heat, lighted instead the small night lamp I carried with me, and still partly dressed, threw myself upon the bed. Without, however, any idea of going to sleep before undressing, as I lay there, I heard distinctly soft footsteps come down the corridor on which my room opens and stop, apparently, in front of the door. They were not, I judged, the footsteps of a European, for the walker was either barefooted or wore soft sandals. I turned my head towards the door, expecting a knock, but none followed. Neither did the door open. 
though i had not yet locked it i was on the point of rising to see what was wanted when it occurred to me that it was probably not at my door that the steps had stopped but at the door directly opposite across the corridor without doubt my opposite neighbor had merely returned to his room and his footsteps had ceased to reach my ears when he entered and closed his door behind him i dozed off but half an hour later as nearly as i can estimate it i awoke and was thinking of the necessity for getting undressed and into bed when a slight a very slight rustling noise attracted my attention i listened intently to locate the direction or the sound and determine whether it was inside the room or out of it and then heard in connection with it a slighter and more regular sound which could be nothing else than breathing some living creature miss waldron was in my room the sounds came from the direction of the table by the window i turned my head as silently as i was able and was aware that a man was holding a sheet of paper under the light of the lamp he was at the table going through the papers in my writing desk but the very slight noise i had made in turning on the bed had warned him he rose with a hissing intake of the breath his feet pattered softly and swiftly across the floor my door creaked under his hand, and he was gone before I could jump up from the bed and intercept him. I ran out into the hallway, but it was empty. I listened, but could hear no movement in any of the rooms near me. I went back and examined the writing desk, but found nothing, nothing missing, and it was plain nothing had been touched except some of my letters from you. But before finally going to bed, you may well believe I locked my door carefully and in the morning i reported the matter to the hotel office the only description i could give of the intruder was that he had certainly worn a turban and one even larger it seemed to me than ordinary the hotel attendants had seen no one coming from or entering my corridor that night who answered this description the turban and the absence of european shoes of course determined him to have been an egyptian turk or arab but what egyptian turk or arab could have entered my room with any other object than robbery which was certainly not the aim of my intruder for the valuables in the writing desk were untouched that same afternoon it is true i had had an altercation amounting almost to a quarrel with a bedouin arab on my way back from heliopolis but if this were he why should he have taken revenge on my writing desk instead of on me and what reason on earth can any follower of the prophet have had for examining with such particular attention my letters from you it was so decidedly a strange thing that i have taken all this space to tell it to you one of the strangest sort of things i have had in all my knocking about and lawler can make no more of it than i who is this lawler who was with mr axton then trot looked up in interestingly from the last page of the letter I only know he was a friend Howard made in London, an interesting man who had traveled a great deal, particularly in America. Howard was lonely after his mother's death, and as Mr. Lawler was about his age, they struck up a friendship and traveled together. An English younger son, perhaps. I don't know anything else except that he had been in the English Army, in the Royal Sussex Regiment, but was forced to give up his commission on account of charges that he had cheated at cards. Howard always held that the charges were false, but that was why he wanted to travel. You know of no other trouble which this Lawler had? No, none. Then where is he now? Dead. Dead? Tron's face fell. Yes, he was the friend I spoke of that was lost. Drowned in the wreck of the Gladstone just before Howard started home. 
Trump picked up the next letter, which was dated and postmarked at Calcutta. Miss Waldron, I have seen him again, he read. Who, you ask? My Muslim friend with a taste for your correspondence. You see, I can again joke about it, but really it was only last night, and I am still in a perfect funk. It was the same man, I swear it, shoeless and turbaned, and enjoying the pleasant pursuit of going through my writing desk for your letters. Did he follow us down the Red Sea, across the Indian Ocean, over 3,000 miles of ocean travel? I can imagine no other explanation, for I would take oath to his identity. The very same man I saw at Cairo, but now here in this great eastern hotel at Calcutta, where we have two rooms at the end of the most noisome corridor that ever caged the sounds and odors of a babbling East Indian population, and where the doors have no locks, I had the end of a trunk against my door, notwithstanding the fact that an Indian servant I have hired was sleeping in the corridor outside across the doorway, but it booted nothing, for Lawler in the next room had neglected to fasten his door in any way, trusting to his servant who occupied like a strategic position outside the threshold, and the door between our two rooms was open. I had been asleep in spite of everything. In spite of the snores and stertorous breathing of a floor full of sleeping humans for the partitions between the rooms do not come within several feet of the ceiling in spite of the distant bellowing of a sacred bull and the nearer howl of a very far from sacred dog and a jingling of elephant bells which were set off intermittently somewhere close at hand whenever some living thing in their neighborhood animal or human shifted its position i was awakened at least i believe it was this which awakened me by a cracking of the floorboards in my room and with what seemed a causeless but was certainly one of the most oppressive feelings of chilling terror i have ever experienced i started upright in my bed he was there again at my writing desk and rustling the papers for an instant i remained motionless and in that instant alarmed by the sight sound i had made he fled noiselessly pattered through the door between the rooms and loudly slammed it shut slammed lawler's outer door behind him and had gone I crashed the door open, ran across the creaking floor of the other room, where Lawler awakened by the slamming of the doors, had whisked out of bed, and opened the door into the corridor. Lawler's servant, aroused but still dazed with sleep, blubbered that he had seen no one, though the man must have stepped over his very body. A dozen other servants, sleeping before their master's doors in the corridor, had awakened likewise, but cried out sh shrilly that they had seen no one. Lawler, too though the noise of the man's passage had brought him out of bed, had not seen him. When I examined my writing desk, I found, as before at Cairo, that nothing had been taken. The literary delight of looking over your letters seems to be all that draws him. Of course I am joking, for there must be a real reason. What it is that he is searching for, why it is that he follows me, for he has never intruded on anyone else so far as I can learn. I would like to know, I would like to know, I would like to know. The native servants ask in awestruck whispers whether I noticed if his feet were turned backwards, for it seems they believe that to be one of the characteristics of a ghost. But the man was flesh and blood. I am sure of it, and I am bound that if he comes again I will learn his object, for I sleep now with my pistol under my pillow, and next time I shall shoot. Trant, as he finished the last words, looked up suddenly at Miss Waldron, as though about to ask a question or make some comment, but checked himself. And hastily laying aside this letter, he picked up the next one, which bore a 
Cape Town, Dayline. My affair with my mysterious visitor came almost to a conclusion last night. For except for a careless mistake of my own, I should have bagged him. Isn't it mystifying, bewildering? Yes, and a little terrifying. He made his appearance here last night in Cape Town, thousands of miles away from the two other places I had encountered him, and he seemed to have no more difficulty in entering the house of a Cape Town correspondent, Mr. Arthur Emsley, where we are guests, than he had before in entering public hotels, and when discovered he disappeared as mysteriously as ever. This time, however, he took some precautions. He had moved my night lamp so that with his body in shadow he could still see the contents of my desk. But I could hear his shoulders rubbing on the wall and located him exactly. I slipped my hand noiselessly from my revolver, but it was gone. The slight noise I made in searching for it alarmed him, and he ran. I rushed out into the hall after him. Mr. Emsley and Lawler, awakened by the breaking of the glass, had come out of their rooms. They had not seen him, and though we searched the house, he had disappeared as inexplicably as the two other times. But I have learned one thing. It is not a turban he wears. It is his coat, which he takes off and wraps around his head to hide his face, an odd disguise, and the possession of a coat of that sort makes it probable he is a European. I know of only two Europeans who have been in Cairo, Calcutta, and Cape Town at the same time we were, both travelers like ourselves, a gutorial young German named Schultz, a freight agent for the Nord Deutscher Loy, and a nasal American named Walcott, who travels for the Seric Medicine Company of New York. I shall keep an eye on both of them, for in my mind at least, this affair has come to be a personal and bitter contest between the unknown and myself. I am determined not only to know who this man is and what is the object of his visits, but to settle with him the score which I now have against him. I shall shoot him next time he comes as mercilessly as I would a rabid dog, and I should have shot him this time except for my own careless mistake, through which I had let my revolver slip to the floor, where I found it by the by. We sail for home. That is, England next week, on the steamer Gladstone. But I am sorry to say, without my English servant Beasley, Poor Beasley, since these mysterious occurrences has been bitten with superstitious terror. The man is in a perfect fright, thinks I am haunted, and does not dare to embark on the same ship with me, for he believes that the Gladstone will never reach England in safety if I am aboard. I shall discharge him, of course, but furnish him with his transportation home and leave him to follow at his leisure if he sees fit. This is the first time I have heard of another man in their party who might possibly be the masquerader Miss Waldron. Trant swung suddenly in his revolving chair to face the girl again. Mr. Axton speaks of him as his English servant. I suppose from that he left England with Mr. Axton. Yes, Mr. Trant, and therefore was present, though not mentioned, at Cairo, Calcutta, and Cape Town. Yes, Mr. Trant, but he was dismissed at that time by Mr. Axton, and is now, and also was, at the mysterious man's next appearance. In the Charing Cross Hospital in London, he had his leg broken by a cab, and one of the doctors there wrote Mr. Axton two days ago telling him of Beasley's need of assistance. It could not have been Beasley, and there was no one else with Mr. Axton, except his friend Lawler, who you say was drowned in a wreck. No one else but Mr. Lawler, Mr. Tron, and Howard himself saw him dead and identified him, as you will see in the, that last letter. Tron opened the envelope 
and took out the enclosure interestingly but as he unfolded the first page a printed sheet dropped out he spread it upon his desk a page from the london illustrated news showing four portraits with the caption sole survivors of the ill-fated british steamer gladstone wrecked off at cape blanco january twenty fourth the first portrait bearing the name of howard axton and showing the determined distinctively handsome features and the full lips and deep-set eyes of the man whom the girl had defied that morning this is a good portrait tron asked abruptly very good indeed the girl answered though it was taken almost immediately after the wreck for the news i have the photograph from which it was made at home i had asked him for a picture of himself in my last previous letter as my mother had destroyed every picture even the early pictures of him and his mother tron turned to the last letter wrecked miss waldron poor beasley's prophecy of disaster has come only too true and i suppose he is already congratulating himself that he was warned by my mysterious visitor and so escaped the fate that so many have suffered including poor lawler of course you will have seen all about it in the starring headlines of some newspaper long before this reaches you i am glad that when found i was at once identified though still unconscious and my name listed first among the very few survivors so that you were spared the anxiety of waiting for news of me only four of us left out of that whole shipload i had final proof this morning of poor lawler's death by the finding of his body i was hardly out of bed when a mangy little man a german trader came to tell me that more bodies had been found and as i have been called upon in every instance to aid in identification i set out with him down the beach at once it was almost impossible to realize that this blue and silver ocean glimmering under the blazing sun was the same white frothing terror that had swallowed up all my companions of three days before the greater part of the bodies found that morning had been already carried up the beach among those remaining on the sand the first we came upon was that of lawler it lay upon its side at the entrance of a ragged sandy cove half buried in the sand which here was a white as leprosy his ears the sockets of his eyes and every interstice of his clothing were filled with this white and leprous sand by the washing of the waves his pockets bulged and were distended with it what what tronk clutched a letter from the desk in excitement and stared at it with with eyes flashing with interest it is a horrible picture mr tronk the girl shuddered horrible yes certainly the psychologist assented tensely but i was not thinking of the horror he checked himself of what then asked carl pointedly but the psychologist had already returned to the letter in his hand the remainder of which he read with intent and ever-increasing interest of course i identified him at once his face was calm and showed no evidence of his last bitter struggle and i am glad this look was thus peaceful poor lawler if the first part of his life was not all it should have been as indeed he frankly told me he atoned for all in his last hour for undoubtedly miss waldron lawler gave his life for mine i suppose the story of the wreck is already all known to you for our one telegraph wire that binds this isolated town to the outside world has been laboring for three days under a load of messages you know then that eighteen hours out of st vincent fire was discovered among the cargo that the captain confident at first that the fire would be got under control kept on his course only drawing in somewhat toward the african shore in case of emergency but a very heavy sea rising 
prevented the firefighters from doing efficient work among the cargo, and in the storm and darkness the Gladstone struck several miles to the north of Cape Blanco, on a hidden reef at a distance of over a mile from the shore. On the night it occurred, I awakened with so strong a sense of something being wrong that I rose partly dressed myself and went out into the cabin, where I found a white-faced steward going from door to door, rousing the passengers. Heavy smoke was billowing up the main companionway in the light of the cabin lamps, and the pitching and reeling of the vessel showed that the sea had greatly increased. I returned and awoke Lawler. We went out on deck. The sea was a smother of startling whiteness through which the gladstone was staggering at the full power of her engines no flame as yet was anywhere visible but huge volumes of smoke were bursting from every opening in the fore part of the vessel the passengers in a pale and terrified group were kept together on the after deck as far as possible from the fire now and then some pallid staring man or woman would break through the guard and rush back to the cabin in search of a missing loved one or valuables Lawler and I determined that one of us must return to the stateroom for our money. And Lawler successfully made the attempt. He returned in ten minutes with my money and papers and two life preservers. When I tried to put on my life preserver, I found it to be old and in such a condition as made it useless. Lawler then took off the preserver that he himself had on, declaring himself to be a much better swimmer than I, which I knew to be the case, and forced me to wear it. This life preserver was all that brought me safely ashore and the lack of it was, I believe, the reason for Lawler's death. Within ten minutes afterward, the flames burst through the forward deck. A red and an awful banner which the fierce wind flattened into a fan-shaped sheet of fire against the night, and the gladstone struck with terrific force, throwing everything and everybody flat upon the deck. The bow was raised high upon the reef, while the stern, with its maddened living freight, began to sink rapidly into the swirl of foaming waters. The first two boats were overfilled at once in a wild rush, and one was stove immediately against the steamer's side and sank, while the other was badly damaged and made only about fifty yards progress before it went down also. The remaining boats all were lowered from the starboard davits and got away in safety, but only capsize or be stove upon the reef. Lawler and I found places in the last boat, the captain's. At the last moment, just as we were putting off the fiery maw of the Gladstone, vomited out the scorched and half-blinded second engineer and a single stoker whom we took in with difficulty. There was but one woman in our boat, a fragile, illiterate Dutch woman from the neighborhood of Johannesburg, who had in her arms a baby. How strange that of our boatload, those who alone survived should be the Dutch woman. But without her baby, the engineer and stoker, whom the fire had already partially disabled, and myself, a very indifferent swimmer, while the strongest among us all perished, of what happened after leaving the ship, I have only the most indistinct recollection. I recall tall swamping of our boat, and cruel white waters that rushed out of the night to engulf us. I recall a blind and painful struggle against a power infinitely greater than my own, a struggle which seemed interminable for, as a matter of fact, I must have been in the water fully four hours, and the impact of the waves alone beat my flesh almost to a jelly. And I recall the coming of daylight and occasional glimpses of a shore which seemed to project itself suddenly above the sea and then at once to sink away and be swallowed by it. I was found unconscious on the sands. I have not the faintest idea how I got there, 
and I was identified before coming to myself. It may please you to know this, by several of your letters which were found in my pocket at present, with my three rescued companions, whose names even I probably never should have known if the Gladstone had reached England safely, I am a most enthralling center of interest to the white, black, and party-colored inhabitants of this region. And I am writing this letter on an antiquated typewriter, belonging to the smallest, thinnest, baldest little American that ever left his own door-yard to become a missionary. Trant tossed aside the last page, and, with eyes flashing with a deep glowing fire, he glanced across intensely to the girl watching him, and his hands clenched on the table in the constraint of his eagerness. End of The Axton Letters By William McHarg and Edwin Balmer Part 1 Recording by John Smith